0: Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Interregnum, a new fortnightly show with author Richard Seymour. I spoke with Richard about his article, The Cruelties of Self Help Culture, which recently appeared in the New Statesman. We talked about the magical thinking propagated by what Richard calls the success wing of self help literature, and why its claim that success depends almost solely on individual effort is so appealing. We also talked about the history of self help culture and the significance of Samuel Smiles the Victorian liberal reformer and author of the 1859 book, Self-Help, illustrations of character and conduct. We also chatted about the mindfulness phenomenon and finally we discussed Richard's plans to write a self-help book from the left. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have lots of great titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. Verso are delighted to announce the publication of Feminism or Death, How the Women's Movement Can Save the Planet by Francois Dubon in English for the first time. Originally published in French in 1974, radical feminist Francois Dubon surveyed women's status around the globe, proposing a politics of eco-feminism. As Dubon prophesied, the planet placed in the feminine will flourish for all. Never before published in English, This edition includes an introduction from scholars of ecology and feminism, situating de work within current feminist theory, environmental justice organising and anti-colonial feminism. Feminism or Death? How the Women's Movement Can Save the Planet is out now from Verso Books and part of their March Verso Book Club reading. And now to the interview with Richard. If you would like to hear the extended hour-length version of today's episode of Interregnum, then please consider becoming a £3 supporter of the show. As well as getting access to extended versions of my conversations with Richard, you'll also be able to access extended versions of other PTO episodes. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. So Richard, you recently wrote an article for the New Statesman titled The Cruelties of Self-Help Culture. Now, when I think of self-help, the first thing that tends to come to mind is the self-help section in in bookshops and how it can feel faintly embarrassing to be seen browsing there because, rightly or wrongly, self-help literature is often seen as being quite cheesy or, or, or lacking in evidence for the claims that are made by authors. But in those sections, there's a pretty broad array of material ranging from pop psychology to business literature, guides to meditation practices of one sort or another but it's a particular strand of self-help literature that you zero in on in that piece. Could you explain what the key themes are of the type of self-help material that you wrote about has?
1: Well, first of all, I think you're absolutely right that self-help is such a broad and capacious category that any generalized denunciation is just not going to work, because I think we all have our preferred version of self-help. So I happen to like reading books with a psychoanalytic or psychological inflection, and that's just an upmarket version of self-help, really. <laughs> so th- I, I just want to put that in the... Uh, just
0: just punctured my ego there, Richard, but, but carry well, on. Well, <laughs> uh,
1: as, as the um, uh, Buddhists say, no self, no problem. Now, um, uh, the thing that I zero in on is what I would characterize as the success wing of self-help, which is really a form of magical thinking for those who are trying to manage the distresses and the disappointments of late capitalism. And I mean, obviously, different specimens of self-help literature come out at different points of historical development. So there's a famous book called uh, The Road uh, Less Travelled by a guy called Peck. I think it was called M. Scott Peck. And uh, essentially, it is a combination of psychotherapy with the Protestant work ethic. And it comes out in 1978 amid a crisis of post-war plenty, amid rising unemployment and insecurity and the growth of uh, fiscal austerity at the top of uh, government. And it says to people essentially that the solution lies in their achieving a state of grace and that the problem is a kind of fundamental lethargy and laziness. Now that might seem like a strange pitch. You know, you've got your readers and you're saying, well you're all too lazy. Scolding them. Yeah, yeah, except that really it's um in the same way Anthony Robbins does something in his book Awaken the Giant Within, you know, he he says, you know, everybody's given up on their dreams, you know, they've given into frustrations, we've lost the uh, the certainty that gives us the winning edge and what we need to do is to break these beliefs that hold us
0: back. Yeah, you you you're better than this.
1: Uh, there's an element of that. Yeah, there's the, the I mean I always hate it when people tell me I'm better than this. I'm absolutely not better than this. <laughs> and neither is anyone else. But there's a obviously a, a sort of a burst of motivational energy there. Because if you're able to suspend disbelief, and given that you can't control the global economy, and you can't control what the government does, and you can't control what your company is going to do, and you can't control the way the labour market is being restructured so that the idea of a career for life, you know, a single lifelong calling, is, is gone. With the dodo, you know, you can't control all of that, but you can control your beliefs to some extent, or at least you think you can. You can control a certain amount of what you do. And so if somebody's telling you, hey, look, you know, you have it within your gift, the stuff that is under your control is actually the stuff that matters. Your attitudes, your beliefs, they hold you back, change what you believe, and you will relate differently to the facts and you will instrumentalize them differently. And again and again, you get this, uh, you know, the the, the essay was um, prompted in the first instance by the um, uh, fast fashion boss, Molly May Hague, who said, you know, if you want something enough, you can achieve it. We all have the same 24 hours a day. You're given one life and it's down to you what you do with it now. That can seem hypocritical from someone who grew up privileged, as she did, and it can seem quite callous and hard-hearted, which I think in a fashion it is, but it is obviously intended to be inspirational. It is intended to draw your attention to the resources that you have, 24 hours a day. That's what you've got. And the question is, what are you going to do with it? You might not have 10 grand startup capital, but you might be able to do something with it, and that can feel quite assertive and empowering jen sincero is another one that i quote um she's the author of this book you are a badass and that's uh, one of those there's a whole genre of uh, self-help books which are basically about instilling supernatural levels of confidence you know you are a badass motherfucker you don't give a fuck about anything go out there and get what you want um, and there's a sort of competitive hard-edged sort of brutality to it and are not all self-help books are like that. Quite a lot of them are looking, for, are looking for a way of helping you to achieve what you want within some sort of social compact, you know, getting to yes. It's all about negotiation. It's all about working with others to achieve optimal solutions, win-win solutions, etc. There's a lot of that sort of stuff. But you are a badass, says. If you want something badly enough and decide that you will get it, you will. So... A number of things to notice about this. Obviously, it doesn't say if we need something and we decide we want it and have the political will and work collectively to le- you know motive, leverage uh, our strengths, we can achieve it, which would be a strategy for social transformation, a strategy for a trade union struggle or any number of things. It's very much a fantasy about what you can do, that you are a badass. And that can be empowering, but, you know, what about when you're not a badass? I mean, there's um, one of these memes. You, you'll you see it everywhere, these inspirational memes. And one of them is about, uh, you know, how the devil said to me, you can't survive the storm. And I whispered in the devil's ear, I am the storm. And uh, what if you're not... What if you're just not the storm today? What if you're not a badass? What if you've been trampled on and kicked around? And the one thing you want is to go home and open a can of uh, tomato soup and sit in front of the television and cry over an episode of Friends or something. I mean, I'm not saying I've ever done any of those things, by the way. <laughs> um, but some people might have done them. <laughs> but, you know, you you can't always be a badass. But, okay, there's you can understand that the, there's a literature here which is telling you that... You know, there's something you can do about your fate, and it has a lot to do with your attitudes. It has a lot to do with frequently learning one weird trick, you know. So it might be learning some financial tricks, it might be mastering the law of attraction, which is The Secret by Rhonda Byrne. I mean, I I know... Self-confidence as well. Self-confidence is a big one. And, I mean, positive thinking, the power of positive thinking, mind power. This uh, this stuff goes back a long way. You know, you can track it back into the 19th century when the ethic was somewhat different. But the basic idea of having an attitude to oneself that is essentially an inflated version of one's spiritual powers goes back a long way anyway so there's a jolt of motivational enthusiasm there's some sort of counter attack upon demoralization and you can see the value in that even if the literature is profoundly unscientific and misleading and inflationary in its approach
0: i mean i suppose something quite insidious about it is that it can appeal to both supposed winners and supposed losers in quite different ways so I I guess you know as you say to sort of the ordinary person in the street it's selling a fantasy of control and the possibility of taking control of one's life and achieving things but obviously if you are someone who is you know one of our society's supposed winners they're able to tell themselves that their success was not about luck or class location or or cultural capital or what have you but solely to do with their own efforts and and their risk-taking fearlessness and in a different way that's obviously very appealing to them Yes.
1: I mean, I think for many people, their sense of dignity depends upon the idea that whatever they achieve is a product of effort and not of luck. I don't think we like to believe that we're at the command of capricious fate, you know, the fate of being born into the right family, or whatever it happens to be. And yet at the same time, the obverse of this Fantasy, which is obviously self-serving for those who have done very well, is the idea that life is a lottery. And so it's a kind of strange. It's almost like what Weber says about the Protestant work ethic. If you recall, he describes the Calvinist doctrine of predestination. There's nothing you can do, basically, about whether you end up in heaven or not. Because essentially, that has been decided already. All you can do is, by committing yourself to a life of good works, try to manage the massive uncertainty by essentially behaving as if you are among the elect. And in a way, this is what a lot of self-help literature is doing. I mean, we can talk about how it um, rationalizes the status of people who have done very well. But what I'm interested in is the fact that this literature appeals to people who aren't doing very well. And one of the things that it does is that even amid a general cultural environment where we're told life is a lottery, so it could be you, and if it isn't, then, you know, obviously there's something wrong with you. But it's a weird kind of thing where if life is a lottery, then what does that mean? It means something about destiny. Some people are predestined for success. Others are morally unworthy. And the only way in which you can manage the unbearable stress of, frankly, not knowing if you're ever, if, if it's ever going to be you, if uh, the big finger of the national lottery is going to point in your direction, is to commit yourself to doing all the right things and believing that tomorrow it will happen. It didn't happen today, but tomorrow will happen. The next wheeze will enable me to make it. And... Then there's one last thing to say here, which is that although the habits promoted by self-help literature aren't always very helpful, it is true to say that there are some things that people can do if they're concerned about, for example, their financial well-being. There are some basically middle-class habits like saving, you know, like um, if you can find a way to get hold of property, a house or something like that, even with a, a very expensive mortgage... For many people, it would make absolute economic sense for them to do that because in the long run, they will you know, benefit from the way the economy is set up. There is also something to, to be said for the idea that certain types of financial literacy may be helpful to you. But it's just that these uh, claims are, A, depoliticized and extracted from any wider analysis of society and where you fit into it, and B, as I say, rather inflationary. They make quite messianic claims for often quite mundane ideas.
0: When you say that we don't like to think that we do well or, or badly because of luck or circumstances that are beyond our control, do you regard that as, as a statement about the era that we live in, the era of, of liberal capitalism, or do you see it extending beyond that? Is, is it a claim about human psychology? Or do you think, because obviously, you know, that the fantasy of the autonomous, self-directed individual is is a core part of capitalist ideology going back centuries.
1: I would say it is an aspect of uh, capitalist modernity. I think that previous societies would have been rather surprised by the notion that an individual can achieve anything if only they put their mind to it or whatever. I think that there was certainly an acceptance, a stoical acceptance of an idea of fate. You know, that was sometimes blended into versions of popular religiosity or that there was some sort of providence but this wasn't about the idea that you can overcome the natural order of things. I think that that is a distinctly modern idea and one that you can see develop particularly after, after I guess, what you would call the bourgeois revolutions, really. When independent centers of capital accumulation start to emerge and expand, you know that's when you start to see these ideas emerge as, I would say... You could argue they're an excrescence of a real abstraction, right? So in the sense that just as our behavior within the market implies that commodities have some sort of magical substance that makes them exchangeable and that, you know, that That substance is independent of the process through which they are produced and so on. You could argue that the competitive structures of a capitalist economy and what Palance has called the effect of isolation, which he said is terrifyingly real, you know, where essentially the isolating effect is that you have only yourself and your own resources to rely upon and you are in real competition with other workers, even if you cooperate with them. Well, you could say that even if you don't think about it, there is built into that logic the idea that uh, you are somehow responsible for everything that happens to you. And then, you know, obviously this becomes mediated in various ideological forms. So you could say something like that. This is speculation on my part, but I'm simply saying that the inability to tolerate the idea of destiny or luck or providence as deciding our fate even though we're all sort of familiar with that, these ideas and even though we all kind of even if you know like uh, you know you're scientifically minded it's uh, these ideas are sedimented in the cultural unconscious if you like but even if you are habituated to that world There's a sense in which it is felt as injurious to your dignity to think of that about yourself. Destiny is for other people unless destiny is going to lift you to the top of the world. Luck is for other people. You make your own luck in this world. All of that kind of stuff. So um, that does mean that this mindset can be undone. That this form of consciousness is not inevitable and that we can live in different ways with one another, but it has been resilient for a long time. So I wouldn't imagine that this would be something that could be easily overcome. The good thing is, uh, the fortunate thing is, that this sort of consciousness coexists with various other forms of consciousness. And the victory of capitalist ideology is never total. And indeed, capitalist ideology is never totalized in itself. It always contains elements of popular ideology, of social democratic consciousness,
0: and so on. Yeah, so you wouldn't see a a shift in consciousness as, as just being sort of downstream of some radical change in the economic system. I
1: mean, I think we have seen prefigurative shifts in consciousness. So, you know, Jeremy Gilbert and the acid Corbynites, uh, as they called themselves, uh, you know, the acid communists, they would look back to certain transcendental experiences, new age ideologies, the rave movement of the 1990s, and they would say that this contained the potential for other ways of living, other ways of being, other ways of relating to one another that radically broke with the rhythms of capitalist production. And I think there's something to that. I mean, I have a critique of, uh, you know, for example, of New Age ideology, obviously. You know, I think the, the left is quite familiar with this kind of critique. But I think there was something utopian in that. And we should be aware of the fact that utopian yearnings can spring from... The very status of of being subordinated, one thinks um, in this context of sort of religiosity and spiritualism among African Americans in the United States and the ways in which you know even when social organization, among African Americans was utterly crushed. And I'm talking about in the period of antebellum slavery, where there was no prospect of organizing in solidarity. Where you know, slave revolts uh, tended to be individual and sporadic. Uh, uh, you know, the, the nonetheless, they developed um, a quite vibrant form of uh, uh, Christianity. Um, that contained within it some rebelliousness and some uh, and a utopian dimension. And so that's just an example of the ways in which we don't necessarily have to... Uh, our consciousness, as it were, does not have to be programmed for us by an established infrastructure of radical opposition. And we can develop a consciousness that prefigures the kind of world that we want to live in. And in a way, I'm suggesting in this essay that... Self-help literature, for everything that's wrong with it, for everything that's cynical and cheesy about it, for everything that it, is, it denigrates human dignity, nonetheless contains within it a submerged and occulted desire for a form of social justice, for the idea essentially that my rewards reflect what I put in is basically an idea of some form of social justice and even if you know it's i mean i think meritocracy is a profoundly unattractive ideal but that is basically kind of what's going on there meritocracy is what most people think of as fair if i put the work in i should uh, you know i should be rewarded
0: does this mean richard the chicken soup for the soul and the secret this is the new heart of the heartless world you
1: could say that, but it depends what, what we mean by that, because, of course, there is um, a, an interpretation of Marx on religion, which is that Marx was simply a critique, a, a critic of religion and wanted us to break with our illusions and so on. But, of course, I mean, the heart of a heartless world the statement came in a context of in which it recognized the dignity, indeed, in some sense, the necessity of religious illusions, I think that it's entirely possible that some that what we call religious desire is in some sense intrinsic not to not to human nature whatever that is Not in an evolved sense, you know, there's a a lot of arguments that religious needs have evolved and so on. But rather, I I think there's something more fundamentally ontological about it. There's something in the nature of reality and in, obviously, our relationship to that reality that uh, lends itself to this kind of transcendental yearning. And so I I don't think that that's inherently problematic or uh, irrationalist or anything else like that. But if we can take that as, you know, just a proposition, something to work with, we can say that maybe something like that is at stake in self-help literature, because it is amazing how often there is either an open or an occluded religious impulse in self-help literature. And indeed, the roots of it are in religious writing. So I think that we need to engage with that need for a something like faith and be something like, I describe a need for emotional amnesty now that is something that you know emotional amnesty is uh, can mean many things but one of the things it might mean is i'm suffering i'm desperate i'm miserable i've done something awful or i've had something awful done to me i need to be able to let go of this i need to be able to have the slate wiped clean or at least to be able to move on. That is something that religions frequently offer in one form or another. And, you know, one could go through the list of things. But I think that self-help literature is often offering a cliched, cheapened version of traditional religious dispensations.
0: Going back to the article itself, so you write about one of the key figures in in the history of the self-help genre, the Victorian liberal and and chartist Samuel Smiles, the author of the 1859 book Self-Help, which has the subtitle Illustrations of of Character and Conduct. The book made Smiles famous and and sold 20,000 copies in its first year and and a quarter of a million copies by the time of his death in, in 1904. Can you talk a little bit about Smiles and and how you see him as a a forerunner of later works in the same same genre?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that if you look at uh, his book, Self-Help, and if you look at his essays, uh, they're not reactionary essays. He's not a reactionary. He's assumed to be a forerunner of Thatcherism. And indeed, you know, some people on the right would claim him. I don't think the left can claim him at all. You know, I, I identify him as a liberal reformer. And at that time, liberalism had a radical edge. You know, I mean, to say that he was a chartist is to say that he favored something that was quite radical in that context, the idea that working class people should have votes and that they should have rights in the workplace. So he obviously had some idea of meritocracy and was opposed to the idea that anybody should live off anybody else's labor. But By this, he did not mean capitalists, okay? He certainly thought the aristocracy were a bunch of leeches. He thought that capitalists could be exploitative. But as far as he was concerned, the basic idea of capitalist investment was a good one. And, you know, what he was really thinking about was that there might be people among the poor who, because of their laxity because of their laziness, because of their insobriety, because of their thriftlessness, act as a burden upon, you know, other members of the working class and frustrate their advance. So there's obviously a Victorian register to this, and obviously it's linked to ideologies of a respectable working class. It's not Although it appeals to a certain version of individualism, it is not totally individualized. It's not just saying you go out and get whatever you want and to hell with anybody else. It has a social conscience, albeit of a small c conservative kind. And so, I mean, one thing that I'm clear about in the essay is that although the idea of uplift, of self-help, becomes a cultural touchstone in neoliberalism... It's worth saying that the values are completely different. You wouldn't celebrate thrift so much today. We're often hypocritically told we must save, but we're also told to spend. And we're also told that we have to borrow because that sustains the economy. You've got to save for your retirement, but you also can't save a dime because you need to support the economy. So basically, the real values have become these nebulous values of innovation and risk-taking. Now, innovation and risk-taking were not values to Samuel Smiles. He thought you should save your money and you should be respectable and sober and courteous and look after your neighborhood and so on. You know, these old values, and obviously they still have some sort of role today. But today, you know, there's almost a kind of sanctioned sociopathy because we live in the emotional life world of neoliberalism and that life world is one where anybody else could stick the knife in and where uh, essentially any claim to represent a public interest or a wider social interest is treated as fictitious and as a nefarious attempt to dress up private self-seeking activity. So essentially, there can be no public good, there can be no real social interest. The best that you can achieve is the unhypocritical, open and honest, self-serving activities of individuals and their various enterprises. And that's a situation in which, if anybody else can stick the knife in, if there is no social good, and if all claims to represent a social good are hypocrisies lies etc that's a profoundly paranoid world that's a world in which you are surrounded by demons in the sort of uh, theological sense and therefore you know it's a delusional world and if the idea is on the one hand that you know the life is just a lottery and it could happen to you but it might not on the other hand there is kind of unofficial morality. You know, neoliberalism is supposed to be amoral, you know. It never really was, uh, as uh, Jessica White's work shows. But in practice, it's supposed to be amoral. It's supposed to be concerned with a certain set of governmentalities around the market and around market-like transactions. And within that framework, you can pursue whatever value or end or utility you prefer. And, you know, Hayek is very clear to say that the rewards do not accrue to those who deserve them. And it would be a mistake to think that that's what happens because A, it's a weak defense of capitalism and B, it will make those at the top even more absurdly self-entitled and make them very unpopular as a result. But in the context of neoliberal culture, you do see a distinctive culture of winners and losers. You do see very sadistic television shows, which are, you know, for example, about the bailiffs going around to kick in people's doors because they haven't paid their debts, Benefit streets, you know, things about feckless people on welfare. There's a whole series of shows which are predicated upon organising social Sadism, and that's just built into the popular culture. And there's also correspondingly a certain enjoyment in the sadism of the rich and powerful. There's the show The Apprentice, where somebody, either Alan Sugar or Donald Trump in the United States, would point and say, You're fired. And that's the libidinal high of the show. So there's a, a sort of a morality there, wherein not only is it paranoid, but if you're thrown to the bottom, it's, uh, you, you may as well have been cast into hell. You, you know, you're, ult- you're completely and utterly ostracized in this version of the culture. And all you deserve is more punishment, you know. So there's um, not just a kind of paranoic world, but a pseudo-masochistic world built into that. And this is why self-help can be a bit of a palliative Because the self-help people will come to you when you're at the bottom end, being kicked around, and you're punished for being at the bottom of every available pile and blamed for being there, will tell you you're actually worth something, and you can get out of this, and I'm going to help you.
0: Going back to that point about Hayek, so as you say, Hayek didn't go in for trying to justify capitalism on this sort of moral basis where you get out what you put in, in terms of effort and hard work in in an earlier time, and, and then through you know fearless innovation, the more kind of entrepreneurial values. But clearly, Margaret Thatcher, who saw Hayek as her ideological lodestar, did trade in those kind of moral defences of capitalism. Do you see that just as the difference between an economist and, and a politician that because she's far more public facing than somebody like Hayek was, that she's obliged to make these more sort of emotionally appealing justifications, whereas someone like Hayek can appeal to what he believes is a, is a very sort of Concrete, worked out, logical justification for capitalism versus, say, a planned economy of one sort or another.
1: Yeah, look, I mean, I think that Hayek was genuinely worried that if you set up a justification like this, it's going to fall apart because people will see the rewards are not just and then they might be inclined to rebel against it. That sure, I think, was probably closer to the truth in that. As a politician, she had to wire herself into aspects of popular common sense. So she was mediating between the doctrine on the one hand, in which she was a believer, and just bits of embedded common sense, which... Uh, you know, common sense is it contains radical elements. It contains conservative elements, and the trick of a politician is to find a way to bind your vision to a sort of incoherent, motley series of elements from the popular common sense. And so, I think um, presumably her own life story would have played a role as well.
0: The daughter of a of, of a grocer and yeah, and so on. yeah.
1: I mean. And she famously regarded the grammar school as the engine of progress and, uh, you know, justifiable inequality. And she would frequently speak in terms of fables. Uh, There was one where she described an encounter with farmers in the Midwest who essentially, you know, would talk about... They they had a phrase that was uh, something like this, let your poppies grow tall. And the idea was... A meritocratic one. Let your children grow tall if they have it in them to be so, uh, to, to, to do so. And don't try and clip them all so they're all the same size. Let everybody grow to their fullest extent. And so this is an appeal to not, you know, hard-nosed economic realities, which Thatcher could do, but to a kind of cuddlier notion of flourishing and development, and in a way to self-help. So Thatcher was more in tune with how the idea of just desserts could work out within a concrete ideological formation. Maybe she didn't really believe it, I don't know. Um, I, I suppose it doesn't really matter. But I think you're right that there's a difference between somebody who is trying to work out a rigorous understanding of how capitalism works... And trying to warn the intellectuals, uh, the the sort of neoliberal thought collective, against certain delusions in order that they can be better militants, better fighters. You know, this was the important thing. If they got carried away with the idea, uh, with what he called the social justice illusion, this uh, what he called a quasi-religious belief with no content whatsoever they would not be effective fighters on behalf of capitalism. You might say here that there's something in the order of what uh, Leo Strauss, the neoconservative intellectual, used to talk about, where there are beliefs that are for the elect, for those who, um, you know, the intellectuals, and then there are beliefs of the masses, and they don't have to be the same thing.
0: Yeah, this this is Murawski and the, the onion layers of the, the thought collective as well, Absolutely, right? yeah. On the point about the shift in values across time that there is within self-help literature, we're widely thought to be either in a process of neoliberalism's decline or end or its it's shift into a more kind of nationalist register. Obviously, it would be very speculative, but what do you think we might see in terms of a a shift in what is seen as the supreme values going forward as opposed to the uh, sort of hardline entrepreneurialism that seems to be most validated today?
1: I mean, I think that whenever there is a shift from one, let's say spatio-temporal fix for capitalism to another, and one ideological system to another. It's never going to be complete. It's never going to be pure. There are always going to be sediments of the old order left behind. You know, neoliberalism did not completely destroy Keynesianism. It did not completely destroy the welfare state. We could end up, I don't think this is going to happen, but we could end up with a much purer and harder version of neoliberalism, but I think what seems to be happening is that the nation state is taking over as, and you know, neoliberalism was compatible with a certain version of competitive nationalism. And there are obviously far right political projects that maintain and uphold and defend certain basic versions of neoliberal economics. And I believe you've had Mirosky on your show talking about this before, quite insightfully. Well, I think that what's happening really is that Certain aspects of neoliberal common sense have obviously entered into a crisis. Certain neoliberal techniques have fallen apart. They're not working any longer. And they've exhausted their political goodwill among those who govern. And the space for kind of very nationalist Keynesian project, a kind of right Keynesianism, has expanded. Ironically, I think it's telling that you're more likely to get that sort of project from... A traditionally centre-right force than you would be from one of the far-right parties. I think it's quite interesting, for example, that Bolsonaro didn't come in in the spirit of let's expand, you know, public expenditures, and Trump did get elected on that basis, but didn't actually start to do that until you know it became basically bipartisan um, in the context of the pandemic. I think it's. Um, uh, you know, it's 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 Biden that's actually trying to implement this agenda when a few years ago you would have thought the Democrats wouldn't touch it with a barge pole. That's possibly a bit of a distraction. Uh, I just wanted to say that there is an emerging shift taking place, but it's not pure. And within that context, national uplift is likely to become more explosive. So, for example, you see on the far right, there's a lot of books for the Manosphere, which are very much in a version of self-help literature. They promote the virtues of a traditionalist masculinity, even if this doesn't resemble in any way what traditional masculinity looked like. There's uh, Susan Faludi's work on this, it's basically been to say, you know, Trump-style masculinity is not the kind of masculinity that, for example, you would have found in 30s America which, you know, it was, it was very antipathetic to the idea of somebody bragging and somebody making themselves out to be a big deal and better than their friends and all the rest of it. This is something... This, this is when in
0: Hollywood the strong silent type is... is yeah,
1: um, although the strong silent type I would say is more a post-war thing. I think Faludi makes this case, you know, it commutes a certain New Deal ideal of the, the little man the ordinary guy in the street into a kind of martial ideal of there there was the idea of the little guy who went over and beat the Nazis so you know they ordinary Joe a six-pack went over and clubbed the master race and then they came back and then that sort of became that martial ideal became commuted into a kind of imperial ideal you know the average American man could be tough, silent. He could go over to Korea. He could go over to Vietnam. He would serve his country. He wouldn't complain. He would do his duty. It said like all of that stuff. And also that was naturally linked to the idea of looking after your household, looking after the family, etc. The kind of aggressive neo-patriarchy that we're seeing really doesn't have much to do with any of those versions of traditional values. It's, um, it's searching out some new terrain, which is much more transgressive and much more wired into certain fascistic energies. But it also comes with a kind of self-help thing, like saying, you know, you're lost. And the reason you're lost is because feminazis have destroyed your morale. And here's what you can do. Jordan Peterson operates on the the light end of this. But there's also, you know, I mean, all this literature about race and so-called race suicide and literature uh, from the far right about uh, sexuality. All of this has a sort of is oriented towards a personal ethic an ethic of self-cultivation of a certain kind. And, you know, you can see that there is obviously, for a large number of people, a real need for this. A sense that uh, they are lost, um, that they don't know what to do, even if they're not suffering in economic terms, there's some sense in which they are suffering. And so what all of this has in common is that it is linked to, one, the idea of the nation-state, and two, the idea of race and civilization. So I think that that's where we're headed to. Not to say that that's the only thing that's coming. There are elements of progressive consciousness coming too. There's, you know, climate change can open up a kind of planetary consciousness, if you like. It can foster elements of cosmopolitanism in the best sense, and it can foster radical hopes and ambitions. And in that context, you might find that aspects of self-help literature that are geared towards the cultivation of the self that are geared toward improving one's emotional regulation, that are geared towards giving one a sense of spiritual validation, might take an ecological form. Indeed, there is a strain of ecological literature that is psychologically geared, that has to do with ecological mourning, for example. But also, you know, I mean, if I read something like George Monbiot's Feral, in some ways I do think of that as self-help literature, and I don't mean that to be an insult. I think it's a great book but it's one that is basically about how can you free yourself from the unnecessary constraints of civilization? How can you rewild yourself a bit? And I think that that's fine. I mean, that's a, it's, a, it's obviously the, the, the question posed in that way can have certain baleful political connotations, but I think it's a valid area of inquiry. And so therefore, we might want to have a much more capacious and open uh, understanding of in relation to
0: self-help You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month, and if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash to sign up. Thanks for listening.